0: This is episode number two eight nine with Dr. Jolene Brighton. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide, and I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with Himalaya is free, super easy to use, and has every podcast you can think of. I love that you can leave comments under each episode and even create episode playlists. Make sure you check it out today. Dr. Jolene Brighton is one of the leading experts in women's medicine and is a pioneer in the exploitation of the far-reaching impact of hormonal birth control and the little-known side effects that impact health in a large way. In her best-selling book, Beyond the Pill, she shares her clinical protocols that support women struggling with symptoms of hormone imbalance, including post-birth control syndrome, and birth control-related side effects. A trained nutritional biochemist and naturopathic physician, she is the founder and clinic director at Rubus Health, an integrative women's medicine clinic. She is a member of the Mind Body Green Collective and has been featured in prominent media outlets such as Forbes, Cosmopolitan, ABC News, and the New York Post. And in this episode, we chat about her story from chronic illness to where she is today, what the pill does to your mind and body, how to heal your hormones, what is seed cycling, the role of stress on your hormones, the power of self-talk for radical self-love, natural birth control options. She gives us all of these for anyone interested, why you need to protect yourself from STDs, what is fertility awareness method, plus so much more. And for everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes, and that's over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 289. And before we dive into today's epic conversation, I want to read the review of the week. And this week, it's a five-star review titled, Insightful and Addictive from Beginner in Mandarin. And she says, Melissa's podcasts are well-structured, well-recorded, and her interviews and her selection of intelligent guests from various backgrounds are so insightful, and I love absorbing all the nuggets of information from each episode. I love being able to apply this information to various aspects of my life and reflect on how they resonate with what I have experienced. I love your work, Melissa thank you so much. I'm so grateful. And don't forget to send me a screenshot of your review and email it to hello at melissarambrosini.com. And I want to send you a little thank you present. I'm going to send you my wildly wealthy guided meditation. So don't forget to email that over. And if you want to get my bursting with love guided meditation, all you have to do is leave a review on Amazon for either Mastering a Mingle or Open Wide or both and send me a screenshot of those as well. And now, without further ado, let's bring on the incredible Dr. Jolene Brighton. Welcome, Jolene. I am so excited to have you on the show. But before we dive in, can you please tell us what you had for breakfast this morning?
1: Oh, what I had for breakfast this morning was probably about a half a cup of broccoli, three cups of sauteed greens, and then a few sausage links. So that's my typical breakfast is as many vegetables as I can get in and high quality protein, which is very different than my the boys I live with. So for people listening, sometimes people are like, well, what is your husband and son eat. And I'm like, they eat more grains than me. Their metabolism is different than me. They they respond differently than me. But for me, I eat primarily protein and vegetables for breakfast. I'm super boring that way.
0: I think it's really important what you just highlighted is that everyone is so individual. And- You know, we, my husband and my, I have a 14 year old bonus son, I call him, and they eat very differently to me. They have very different body types, they have very different metabolisms. So I think it's really important that we honor our uniqueness and we always do what is right for us. Absolutely. Okay, beautiful. I need you to take us back. Take us right back. Tell us your story. How you got into this work and how you got to where you are today. How did this all unfold for you?
1: Oh well, so it's been quite a journey. So, as a kid, I loved medical textbooks. I actually thought I'd be a pharmacist or a doctor. And when I became really sick as a child, is when I really took a deep dive into food as medicine and how to heal my body naturally. So. As a kid, I developed chronic gastritis. Children don't get this, by the way. I was, and this, so for people who are like, how did you know you had this endoscopy? So I had a tube down my throat with a camera and a biopsy because I was vomiting after meals and I had such profound GERD, which is basically reflux or heartburn as most people know it. That I couldn't eat, and I, you know, I, I would be in pain, screaming some nights because I couldn't sleep due to the pain in my stomach and my digestive tract. So it took a long, long time for doctors to finally hear my story and believe it. Because after about a year, they were stumped, so they decided I had an eating disorder, and that they didn't know what was wrong with me, so I should just eat tums for the rest of my life and stop exaggerating my symptoms. It was once I was 17 that I went to a doctor again, complaining of the same symptoms that for almost a decade, I hadn't been able to get help with. And he said, you know, I just was at a conference and they discovered this new organism called H. pylori, and we should test you for it. And lo and behold, I had H. pylori. So I had a infection in my stomach by a bacteria. That can lead to ulcers, inflammation of the stomach, and certainly the reflux that I was having. And so I went through treatment. I found out the hard way I was allergic to amoxicillin. So it broke out in hives everywhere, which meant that I didn't get the month of antibiotics at the time that they were using. I got almost a good two months of antibiotics. And so you can only imagine now with the microbiome research that we have, looking back, being like, oh, yeah, maybe like there would be a better way to go about that. But, you know, in that, my at the end, my doctor said, well, here's a proton pump inhibitor. It hasn't been studied in women. At this time, the FDA was just on the cusp of ruling that women, so where I sit in the United States, the FDA was just on the cusp of ruling that women have to be included in drug trials. So we weren't yet. Never been tested in a woman and never been tested in a teenager, let alone a child. And I was told this was going to be my medication for life. And at that time, I just kind of laughed. I was like, yeah, right. I'm going to take a medication every day. And I start and I asked my doctor about diet and he was like, there's no evidence. We have no research to support that dietary changes can help. True. We didn't have any research, but you shouldn't wait around for research to believe your own body and believe what works for you. Because I started to make the observation that, you know, if I don't eat a bunch of sugar, refined carbs and tomato sauce, like all together at once, or if I skip the fast food menu and instead like elect for what now gets called whole foods, I do a lot better with my digestion. And so that's what really propelled me into studying more nutrition, looking at herbs and looking at natural ways to heal the body. Now, at this time, I was working in dentistry. I actually thought I was going to be a dentist. I actually was studying for my dental exam, got bit by a dog on my right hand and rendered two fingers inoperable for a while. So at that point, I was supposed to sit for my test. And I was like, well, I'm not going to sit for this test if the hand surgeon is telling me right now, you might not be able to use these really, really crucial fingers for working in people's mouths. And that's when I decided to get my master's in nutrition instead. So I pursued a master's in nutrition. And during that time, I found naturopathic medicine. So for people who don't know my background, I started out in dentistry at 16. I went back to college, got a degree in chemistry, then a degree in nutritional science or what some people call nutritional biochemistry, because really my focus is on how do you use nutrients to support the body and what it does naturally and the metabolic pathways. And I was getting my master's in molecular nutrition when I discovered naturopathic medicine. Now, at that time, I actually thought I was on a full ride scholarship to get my PhD in doing research. And I thought, okay, maybe I'll go that route or I'm going to just take the MCAT and I'm going to test to be a a medical doctor just in case to, to hold that door open as well. And then I found naturopathic medicine. And it so appealed to me because, with all my science background, it was a philosophy that actually respected the body's ability to heal and looked at why is your body doing what it's doing? Why do you have symptoms? What can you do to support your body to course correct? And it married how do we use pharmaceuticals, nutrition, herbs, and all of that together to give the best treatment for the person sitting in front of us? So, that's what propelled me into naturopathic medicine. I thought 100% I would focus in gut health. And you know what, guys? Good thing I did because with so much focus there and then diverting into hormones in women's health, it is so, so important that I got a foundational approach in how to care for the gut because that's pretty much everything. And what really was the, you know, turning point in which I decided to study women's medicine and went into doing, you know, two-year clinical rotation in just women's medicine was when I realized that women's medicine was so often done to them, done to us, and not with us. And that for so long, myself had subscribed to this idea that your doctor And science is this deity that you have to never question and just do what you're told. And my mentors really showed me that there was another way that we could partner with women, that the gyne exam should be about consent first. That's how we teach women consent, is we ask for their consent first and throughout the entire visit. And it really changed my perspective and it fired me up to focus on women's health. And I believe it was Maya Angelou who actually said, like, of course, I'm, you know, a proponent of women's health. Like, why wouldn't I like root for my own team? And so that's really how I got my focus in women's health. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing
0: all of that. Oh my goodness. So how did the transition to really focusing on the hormones and the pill in particular, like, How did that kind of unfold for you?
1: Well, I'm no stranger to period problems. Um, As millennials, I think millennials came up with that term. I'm Gen X, so I'm old like that. With that, you know, I had heavy, painful periods. We're talking like my doctors thought I had endometriosis when I first got my period. I was bleeding more than seven days. I would miss school every single month. You know, back then we had hot water bottles, but people were using heating pads, electric heating pads, because that was like the novel thing to use. So as, <laughs> as far as that heating pad would would reach from the wall, I would be on the floor with it, just hugging it and crying and thinking my body was betraying me. The women in my life were like, yeah, you're right. Your body is betraying you. Being a woman is, this is part of being a woman. It's, it's inherently awful. Wait till childbirth. So, you know, in all of that, the funny thing is, my doctor's like, here's a proton pump inhibitor for life. And I was like, never going to do it. Then my doctor said, well, here's a pill and it'll make all your period problems gone. In fact, you don't have to have a period and you have to take it every single day. And I said, sign me up. So <laughs> when it came to gut health, I was like, I don't care what you got from me. When it came to the period problems, I would do anything to escape them. So I started birth control at 17 years old. As a way to escape my painful, heavy periods, I really wish someone would have told me, you need to eat more broccoli, get some magnesium in, increase your fatty fish, rather than going on birth control and thinking like, this is the only way I'm ever going to be able to manage my symptoms. Now, I am really grateful for birth control because I'm a first generation college student. I am the first woman in my family to make it to my 30s with not having a kid. I come from this Huge Hispanic family. (laughs) So I mean huge. Like my grandma had children into the teens. Everybody has like three kids or more. They're still like, what's wrong with you? You only have one. That's doctor life right there. But, you know, with that, and then like, let me just say, that's not every doctor, but this is my path. But, you know, in that, I remember sitting in naturopathic medical school and it was the very first time that I ever heard a woman was only fertile one day out of the month. And I just remember it was like this moment where the camera pans in on you of like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, like, huh? <laughs> yeah, my entire youth, I was taught women can get pregnant any time of the month. And pregnancy and your body is so tricky. Like a boy looks at you, he touches you, he kisses you. Done. You're pregnant. Which if you come from a large Hispanic family, that's not, not too bad of advice to be giving, but it's not medically accurate which is what I really, you know, have spent so much of my career trying to do is create medically accurate information that is accessible to women. And so it was in that moment that I decided I'm coming off the pill. I'm not sexually active. And by the way, I can only get pregnant one day out of the month. And I've spent like a good portion of my life on the pill. I don't even know my body off of it. I know that I've gone crazy a few times while on it. My doctor changed the prescription. But like outside of that, I didn't know my own cyclical nature. And so I came off of birth control and I lost my period. Now, this is where the part of coming from a big Hispanic family really, really counts because my doctor said yeah, you probably had PCOS all along because I had cystic acne. My period was missing. I was having, you know, significant mood swings. They were, they had started on birth control and they were definitely worse when I came off. And my doctor said, well, you probably just have PCOS. You're misremembering your periods. They were always irregular. Mind you, if you count down your periods like doomsday, you know when they're coming and they were not irregular. And he's like, somebody in your family probably has PCOS and they're just not talking about it. Except everybody in my family has kids. No infertility struggles. No irregular periods. Nobody had ever experienced any of this, and so I left his office feeling like I was a freak. I left his office feeling like I am the only one, and feeling really ashamed and not wanting to talk about it. And I was like, I'm going to get my period back. Like the thing is, is I was like, I never want to have kids. But then the moment that you are faced with, you may not be able to have kids. You start to really rethink things. And so I leaned on my background in nutritional biochemistry. I partnered with the the herbs and the lifestyle therapies that I was learning in naturopathic medicine, and I was able to get my period back, clear my skin. I went on to have a healthy pregnancy, but I did think I was the only one until I started my private practice. And it was at that point I realized that the majority of women struggle when they come off of birth control. And I got the reputation as being the doctor who believed women's birth control stories when they had side effects, when they came off and they had issues. And that was really a big light bulb moment for me in my life. And it is, you know, for everybody listening, this is what weaves into, wow, as a child, because I was a female child, I was dismissed. And when you look at the research, Women are dismissed at a higher rate than men when it comes to getting their diagnosis. Their diagnosis comes much later. Their pain is not taken seriously. And even conditions like heart attacks, we die of at a higher rate because we are often met with a throwback to the days of hysteria that the symptoms are all in our head. Mm,
0: Totally. So many women like you, including myself, I was on the pill for about seven years before I knew about anything to do with it, before I knew how detrimental it was. So I was on it from about, I think, 18 onwards for seven years. And then when I came off it, the same thing happened to me. I had no period for maybe a year or a year and a half. And then I took matters into my own hands, like you did. And I was like, I need to get this back and I need to do everything. I need to look at my lifestyle. I need to look at my diet and I need to get this back. And I feel like for so many women, this is not a new story. This is something that either almost every single female I have spoken to has experienced themselves, or they know someone who has experienced it. So what is going on with our hormonal issues? Why is that happening?
1: And what can we do to fix it? Mhm. Well, I first I'm curious, in the entire time that you were on birth control, did you know how it worked? No, I just took it. Me neither. <laughs> it wasn't until I was learning how to prescribe it that I was taught that you know, with these hormones to stop ovulation, they work at the brain level. So to stop ovulation, we're going to flood your system with enough hormones, so even when your doctor says it's low dose, yes, it's low dose compared to the initial trials of birth control, but it's still a high enough dose To tell your brain to stop talking to your ovaries. And that's how we prevent ovulation. Now, the IUD, the progestin IUD, that's a little bit different. Not every woman stops ovulating with that, although they can. And so, why I ask that is because this is a really big part about what's going on with birth control. And there is a brilliant researcher, Dr. Geraldine Pryor, who has raised the concern that what happens if in her research she has come to understand that it's a 10 year maturation period from the time we first get our period that's menarch 10 years to establish brain ovarian communication so if it takes 10 years what happens when we come in with birth control as like the savior uh you know the pill for every female ill it might create hiccups in establishing that and From what I've seen clinically, I'm like, maybe that's part of why we come off in our 40s and suddenly we have acne, we have raging like emotions, like we're going, we're essentially teenagers again, because I hate to say it, but puberty might be necessary and might be a necessary like thing that all of us go through, although it's definitely not fun. But so with that, you know, with hormonal birth control, we've got that interruption in communication we've also got that it's touching every single system in our body. This is the thing that always baffles me when doctors dismiss that women are having symptoms outside their reproductive system as if like no, nope, never never heard of it, never possible and it, you know couldn't happen and I'm like but every single system in your body has receptors for hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. Hormonal birth control has estrogen and synthetic progestin, not progesterone. But those hormones can dock onto the same receptors, which is why we see some women developing mood symptoms, skin symptoms, gut symptoms. You know, we can see cholesterol, high blood pressure, and something that you know, happens in quite a few women on the pill is nutrient deficiencies. So magnesium, zinc, vitamin A, vitamin C, B vitamins, like folate and B12, super important if you get pregnant. And with typical use, the pill is only 91% effective. So we have to keep that in mind as well, that women could become pregnant on birth control. So there's a lot more going on to the birth control story than what we've been told. Although you will find it in the research and you will absolutely find the things that I'm talking to you right now about in drug prescriber handbooks. So I've had, <laughs> actually had um, doctors on the internet, on social media say like, what you're talking about has no foundation. Like none of it, like you're the only one saying this. and like, I'm definitely not the only one saying this. Definitely not. I'm not the first one saying it. Like that is why beyond the pill, one of the dedications is to the women who went before us to show us there was another way. Like women died in early birth control trials and never gave consent to even be in those trials so that we can have access to something that me personally was able to leverage so I could become a first-generation college student. Like, that requires me to show some gratitude and respect for the journey that has happened through all of this. But also to understand that, like, I am not the first clinician to make this observation. There have been countless numbers of clinicians, researchers who have said there's something more to this birth control story than it just stops the reproductive system from working. Totally. I think we are all
0: inundated with, maybe not inundated, but I think we can't turn a blind eye to the research out there now that talks about the detrimental effects of the pill. Like, we can't pretend that we don't know about it now. It's there. We all know about it and we have to look at it. So, I want to talk to you about some natural birth control options in a second, but before we go there, I want to know what can women do to heal their hormones? What are some things that we can do? Because whether there's someone listening who thinks, okay, I want to get off the pill, but then what? Or whether there's someone who's like, okay, I got off the pill maybe a year and a half ago and my hormones still aren't up and running. So
1: how can we heal our hormones? Mm -hmm. So, you know, this this is like the thing that I think, you know, it seems so simple. Yeah, it's got to be said and we're not doing it. But the things that are most powerful in healing your hormones and caring for your body are the things that happen outside the doctor's office. And so it's what you put at the end of your fork. Anybody, whether you're on birth control, off of birth control, you're about to have your period, you've never had a period, you're going into menopause, we can all benefit from eating cruciferous vegetables. And if you're someone who's like, no, they make me have gas and bloating, Try sprouts of cruciferous vegetables. Because in fact, a quarter cup of broccoli sprouts is going to be more potent in some ways than over two pounds of broccoli itself. So this is something that is really easy and accessible. And I bring this up because, you know, there are places in the world where like I talk about, so I'm an international speaker and I'll talk about, oh, eat cruciferous vegetables. And people are like, wait, what? We don't even grow those here. Like, what are you talking about? But you know it's not hard. Like thank you Amazon and the global you know economy and like everything that's available. It's not hard to buy like a pound of broccoli seeds for a couple of bucks and sprout them in a paper towel or a mason jar or buy a fancy seed sprouter and eat a quarter cup of these broccoli sprouts you know three times a week. It's very very economical if you're in college. Believe me, this is the kind of thing that I like lived off of in college (laughs) of like, it was like eggs and like sprouts and seeds because they're really inexpensive. And seeds are another great tool. So, as I talk about in my book, or, you know, for people who can't access that, you can go to drbrighton.com. Seed cycling can be a really great way to support your body. It is the practice of tuning in, paying attention to your cycle, and then, you know, fueling yourself during your cycle. So, During the follicular phase, that's the first day that you see blood, whether that's a withdrawal bleed from birth control or you're having a period, that you're going to eat flax seeds and pumpkin seeds around ovulation, wherever that is for you. Or you can go 14 days if you're not regularly ovulating or you don't have a cycle and you switch to sesame seeds and sunflower seeds. This is going to give you really nutrient dense fuel sources that are going to have healthy fats and minerals that support your cycle. The other thing is tending to your gut health. So, yeah, you could take a probiotic. That could be helpful, but you got to feed those critters. So this I talk about in my book. Like I'm a terrain person. Like we can take probiotics, but you know, as a gardener, I can throw heirloom seeds all over any soil I want. They're not going to grow. You have to cultivate the soil, which looks like eating prebiotics. So yes, cruciferous vegetables can come in again, but also getting in a variety of fibers. Some people like to bring in a little bit of psyllium husk, Jerusalem artichoke, uh, looking at celery, apples, like these different varieties of fibers, even you know oats, if those work for you to support the microbiome and to make sure that you're pooping every day. And then two big things that like, you know, feels a little bit like, oh, we really have to go there, but we do is sleep and exercise. There is no arguing in the research that exercise is always winning. And it doesn't take a study to tell you that you need to go to sleep. (laughs) You need to sleep, right? Because all of us have been there, we've all been teenagers or 20 somethings who's like, I'm just going to sleep four hours. I can do this. And then you notice the next day that you're like not functioning. You know, sleep deprivation is, some people actually perform worse being sleep deprived than being intoxicated with alcohol. Like that's how detrimental it can be to your system. And as women, we are really, really tuned in with our circadian rhythm and the light dark cycles can absolutely impact our hormones overall. So this is like, what am I telling you right now? I'm not telling you any supplements, am I? We could go into supplements, but this is the foundational work. This is like the power that you have every day to take a vote and a step towards better health. It doesn't, this the secret to awesome hormones doesn't lie in a pill, whether that be the pill or it's a supplement. Yes, supplements have a place. Yes, pharmaceuticals have a place. But really, the, the secret to longevity and feeling your best in your body is everything that's within your control at home.
0: Yes, absolutely. I feel like I bang on and on about these things all the time. My audience must be like, oh my gosh, here she goes again talking about nutrition and clean water and sleep. But there's one thing you didn't mention and I'd love to hear your perspective on, and that is stress- reduction things like meditation, how does that affect our gut health and our hormones? I was really hoping
1: you were going to ask that, Um, which is why I left that one out. And let me say this to everybody who wants to eye roll right now and be like this again, ask yourself how well you're doing it. Anytime I go to a conference, like I'll go to a conference on hormones and like, yeah, sure. Okay. So I'm considered a women's hormone expert. But I always sit back and say, but like, how well are you executing on this? How well are you screening for this? How well are you doing this? And this really, that's a question I encourage everybody to always pose. Before you eye roll, be like, but how well am I doing this? How well am I integrating this? So when it comes to stress, I mean, there is no denying that stress impacts every single system of our body as well. So right now, as we're talking, coronavirus is something that people are really, really scared about. Certain age demographics definitely have warrant to have a little more fear and to take extra action. If you are immunocompetent, you're going to be fine. But we, I've been talking to my audience so much about stress because cortisol, a stress hormone is super, super important. Now cortisol, everyone's like, oh, it gives you belly fat and it causes bone loss. That that cortisol is terrible. It also helps with immune system regulation and inflammation. But if you are in a chronic state of stress, that's going to carry over. It's going to affect your sleep. It's going to affect how you eat. Stress has a negative impact on your gut health, which is where the majority of your immune system lies. And you're going to be more susceptible to illness. And it's something that I ask my patients, like, are you getting sick all the time? Like, do you feel like you are susceptible to every illness? If they say yes, I'm concerned about their stress, their vitamin D. Yes, nutrient status overall, but vitamin D is a big one in the world. And you know, how well they're tending to their sleep. Now, when it comes to stress, and if anybody like listening right now, if you've ever heard me say in an interview, the pregnenolone still, I was wrong. Everybody was wrong who was saying that. That's what we used to think happened. So pregnenolone is the mama hormone. She gives birth to cortisol, progesterone, estrogen to our hormones. And yet what we used to thought, think happened is that, oh, if you're stressed, you steal your pregnenolone into making cortisol. But when in fact, what we've come to discover is that when you're stressed, your brain signals make stress hormones at the expense of sex hormones. Now, why would your body do that? Some people will tell you because your body just hates you and is betraying you. Your body is not a vehicle just trying to get you to death. That's not the way it works. The reason why your body would do that need to stand back from an evolutionary perspective. Your body has not evolved to catch up with like walking around with computer screens in our hands and all the things that are going on in our modern world. So when we get stressed, our body actually says, okay, it is a really, really bad time in the environment to have a baby. We can't run from a tiger if we're pregnant. Babies are really loud. They attract predators, or maybe you're not eating enough or you're overexercising. Well, we don't have the fuel to sustain a life. So your body will say, let's choose survival over procreation. The current organism that is mine to tend for, that's you. This human is the one we have to look out for. So we're going to make stress hormones so that we can survive. The problem is is that the modern human doesn't experience a tiger and then run away from the tiger, goes into a cave is safe, calm down. The modern human experiences the pseudo tiger, which is maybe the coworker who's a bully, and then they go home and on social media there's that coworker bouncing up again. And then they don't have proper coping mechanisms for that. So now maybe they're they're binge eating and they're hating on themselves for binge eating and they're staying at night and they're replaying because this is what women do. Every single thing we ever did wrong and it all comes down to, we don't have proper stress coping mechanisms. We don't have community to support this. And we've never really been given the tools to recognize that like, we don't have to carry everybody else's baggage with us. And like, this is something that, Yes, men go through this, but where I'm speaking from right now is as a woman who works with women and what I see. So stress is absolutely detrimental. I mean, just from the impact of, we can see our progesterone decline. What does progesterone do? Makes us feel chilled out, calm, in love with our life. It's a diuretic so that we don't get bloated. We don't have swollen fingers and toes before our period. We sleep better before our period. So, you know, without it, that's where we see PMS symptoms come up and we can see hyperestrogen. So excess estrogen or what's gets called estrogen dominance. And that's not because estrogen's bad or that you've got too much estrogen. It's often because progesterone's not there to challenge that diva. And if that diva can take the stage, well she's going to take the whole stage. Mm, my goodness
0: these are all such great things that we can start to look at that you've mentioned. You know, the seed cycling, what we're eating, the sleep, the exercise, the stress reduction through meditation or whatever it is. These are all incredible things that we can implement into our life that are going to heal our hormones and balance our hormones. And often I find, you know, women come to me and they'll say, yeah, but my hormones are still out. And and I want to touch on what you said before. It was like, "Well, are you actually doing these things every single day?" It's these little things that seem so easy to do, they're also easy not to do. And so if you have hormonal issues, I want to encourage you to clean up your diet, to get better sleep, to look after your gut health, to exercise every single day and to start meditating or doing some sort of breathing or guided meditation, whatever it is. This is
1: magic for your hormones. Absolute magic. Well, I actually want to say about that is that, you know, there was a study done looking at self-talk versus meditation. And what they found was that negative self-talk is inflammatory. Oh, yeah. So this is why I'm like the going to sleep and repeating these things to yourself and beating up on yourself. The way you talk to yourself, so saying hateful things to yourself, things you wouldn't say to another human, but you say it to yourself, physiologically, they can draw your blood and they can see a rise in inflammatory proteins. Well, who's got to come in and handle that? Adrenal glands, cortisol, which means bye-bye, lovely sex hormones. And yet they did this study and they were like, well, what happens if people meditate? And what happens if people talk nice to themselves? positive self-talk one over meditation in reducing inflammatory protein. So if you're someone who's like, by the way, meditation doesn't have to be this like, oh, I'm sitting on a pillow. I've got my incense, all of that. Meditation, you can walk and meditate. Meditation can be so, so simple. But if you're like, meditation is not for me. I don't want to try it. Whatever, whatever. Get in front of a mirror and say something nice to yourself. And you know what? If you've never done this, it is going to be one of the hardest things you've ever done so i just want you to know that right now it is very very hard unless we have you know been taught since childhood i think about that video that went viral of that little girl standing in the mirror telling herself how awesome she is that is the cutest video super cute but try to do it as an adult it gets super uncomfortable i mean i remember when i i read that study and i was like girl you got to get in front of the mirror you got to do this work and looking yourself in the eyes and saying i love you can be incredibly difficult depending on your background, depending on how you've been taught. And so, you know, while we say these things are really easy, they can be really difficult for some people. And so holding yourself, to hold that space, have that grace, and also recognize that like some of this stuff that's really easy for someone might be hard for you. And coming in and shaming yourself for it will actually work against you. So it is okay to give yourself permission. We don't have to be perfect every single day. Life is messy and your body can adapt. But if you aren't giving it a leg up to do that adaptation, like if you're like, I'm not going to sleep, I'm going to binge drink alcohol, I'm not going to eat vegetables, like I'm not going to move my body, like and these things add up, the adaptation won't be there. The stress will hit you so much more and your hormones will be even more difficult to really harmonize altogether. together. Mm, absolutely. I love that self-talk
0: and mirror work. I did a lot of that when I first started on my journey. And I remember the first time I did it, I was just bawling, completely bawling. Yeah,
1: it's hard, right?
0: Yeah. And it's now it's something that I love doing. And I think it's so beautiful. And especially if you have children, oh my gosh, you want them to see you loving yourself and confident in your own skin because that they learn by watching you and what you do. And so if you are walking around saying beautiful things to yourself, they're going to do the same. So it's
1: really important that we remember that. Children are like the biggest mirror, aren't they? Like you're like, oh yeah, I'm doing so well. I I have struggled with body image issues like born out of my youth of things I was told about my body, about what a woman's body should look like about how like my body looked compared to how my friends bodies looked you know we all go through that and it was really i think my son was around 3 when he was a little parrot and he repeated exactly what he had heard me saying to myself of like oh i'm too fat to wear these shorts and i'm just feeling fat and he was like mama's too fat to wear her shorts and my husband's like oh, don't say that about mama and i'm like but mama said that about mama so like how can we tell him not to say it like when I say it? And I, this is why I say like my son will teach me more about life than I'm ever, you know, I'm out here doing all this work, teaching everyone all of these things. And yet my greatest teacher is my child.
0: Totally agree. And the same with my 14 year old bonus son. He is my biggest teacher, my biggest mirror. And that's the role of our children. Mm -hmm. So I would love to hear now, what are some natural birth control options for people? Because I know a lot of people listening will be like, okay, so the pill is crossed off the list. It's not an option. What can we do to, because maybe, you know, they're in their teens or their early 20s, or they're not with their soulmate. What can they do as natural birth control?
1: Mm-hmm. So the best birth control that works for you is the one that works for you and that you will consistently take. So that, you know, whenever people are asking, me, they'll say, "Well, what's the best birth control that people should use? The one that they can stick with, that's effective for their purposes." And so to understand that, I'm not anti birth control. I don't think that this needs to be an either or conversation. Either you never talk about the side effects of birth control or you hate birth control. It's really about, we need to review the side effects in the context of the individual so that they can have an informed choice, so that they can choose what is absolutely best for them. And so, you know, when we say natural birth control, well, the most natural birth control would be fertility awareness method or abstinence, right? Because people could argue that latex condoms are not natural, that a copper IUD is not natural. So I just want to, you know, frame it in that way because it, it just, like, it really depends. Like, I will sometimes talk about barrier methods and then depending on people's beliefs, they'll say, that's not natural. It's not natural to use barriers. Okay, so your beliefs matter. Your beliefs matter to you, but as a doctor and in science, my beliefs don't matter for you. So I hope that makes sense, that, like, I bring you the data, I bring you the research, but whatever I believe, whatever anyone else believes does not matter in the context of your choice. So, you know, with that, we've got several options for hormonal contraceptives. So we talked about the pill, there's the progestin IUD, we also have the depot shot, we've got the ring and we've got the patch and then the implant as well. For non-hormonal options, there is only one IUD. And so for anyone listening, chapter 13 of Beyond the Pill goes through all the non-hormonal birth control options. So copper IUD, the ParaGuard, that one, when it works well, women love it. It is like the highest efficacy and highest user satisfaction of all the methods of birth control when it comes to interventions. Women using fertility awareness method, which we'll talk about in a minute they love that. <laughs> when it works well, they really, really love it. But you know, copper IUD doesn't work for everyone. There's the issue that it can induce or worsen heavy periods, painful periods. There are no studies to show that it causes overt copper toxicity, although there are lots of women who report it. To me, if women are reporting it, that's worth listening to and testing. And I have tested women's baseline. They get the copper IUD. And we see later down the line that there are elevated levels of copper in their system and lower levels of zinc. Can I say 100% the IUD caused it? Absolutely not. But for her, she's having symptoms now. She's not feeling right. This is not the best option for her. What I will say is that in some of the studies, they do conclude that if you have a copper storage disease, so you have a predisposition to storing copper, that it's probably not a good option for you that may mean they're seeing something there that's not statistically significant that they can't really make a conclusion or report on. So what does this come down to? The same thing is true for every form of hormonal birth control or any medical intervention, and that is, what is true for me? What is true for me? Because science isn't there to be able to tell us the response of every single individual. When it comes to the research, there's what is statistically significant, what is worth reporting on, and then there are the outliers. The people that they don't know what happened there, but something happened there. So those are the outliers. You may be an outlier. Researchers expect that when it comes to drug trials or really any intervention that includes diet as well, supplements, lifestyle therapies, there is going to be this gray. that's not black and white. Like I think about melatonin, for example. Sure, melatonin's natural and we make it. Some people sleep well with it, and some people have horrific nightmares and headaches and migraines, and it just is the worst thing ever. That's not normal to see in a general population, but that's true for you. So let's respect it. So we've got the copper IUD, arguably one of the highest efficacy rates. The IUDs, if you don't want to get pregnant, IUDs are the way to go. Then we've also got barrier methods. Everyone listening, if you are not in a monogamous relationship, you need to have barrier methods on board. The pill, the patch, the IUD, none of those will protect you against gonorrhea, chlamydia, HPV. Or any sexually transmitted infection, so you have to understand that. That, like, uh, you know, and if you've got a, what do you do? You guys say blokes where you're at? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So if you've got a bloke who's like, I don't use condoms, well, he don't get to have sex. Like that's the bottom line. Men don't get to call the shots, okay? When it comes to contraceptives, can they be part of the conversation? Yes, please. But you know, I hear this sometimes where. My patients will say, Well, he said he just won't use a condom. I'm like, Well, he doesn't like sex, does he? Because the thing is, is that you've got to get STI screening. You have to go through certain testing to even know is it safe to not use a barrier method? None of these contraceptives will protect you.
0: No, I know. This is
1: crazy. I was speaking to someone
0: in their early 20s the other day, and we were talking about the pill and everything that we're talking about now, basically. And I said to her, You know, you don't just wear a condom so you don't get pregnant. And she was like, what do you mean? And I was like, what about all the STDs? And Mm -hmm. she, it literally was like a light switch went off in her brain and she was like, oh, my gosh, I haven't even thought about that because in high school we spend so much energy on don't get pregnant. You know, they're telling you don't get pregnant, don't get pregnant. They're not saying don't get pregnant and try not to get an STD. It's just so focused on not getting pregnant, but it is so important if you are, you know, having sex with
1: lots of different people that you use protection. Or even just a new person. Like yes. it doesn't even have to be. So like, that's a really important point because sometimes like I I've third clinicians actually say, well, they're only having sex with one person. And I'm like, well, you don't have to be, you know, polyamorous to contract an STI. That's not how that works. Also, do you know that other person is only having sex with you? So that's a question. I remember early on in my relationships when I had this conversation with a guy that I was like, I think we've had this conversation. Are you having relationships with other women? And he was like, If you've got a problem with that, I don't like. I don't think we should continue this relationship. And I was like, One hundred percent, we shouldn't because like I don't want anything like. And at that time. When I was young, we called it the funk. Like, I don't want the funk. And like, <laughs> doctor speak, that's, that doesn't mean anything. So we're talking about like HIV, gonorrhea, chlamydia. And yeah, we can treat gonorrhea and chlamydia, but sometimes they're silent infections. They can affect your future fertility. Like, and I think you hit the nail on the head in that we are taught that the threat of pregnancy is the most dangerous thing that can happen to us. That like, no questions asked, just don't get pregnant. And I've had so many women in my office and like when I go and I, I lecture to young women and I'll start talking about this and they're like, my doctor never told me I needed to use a condom. They just said, here's the pill, go to college, study hard, don't get pregnant. And I'm like, you need to use a condom. So condoms are really, really important and knowing the lubrications matters. So if you're using a latex condom, I know like coconut oil became like all the rage as a lube. And my patients are like, oh, I'll use coconut oil. It's so great. And I'm like, the, your latex condom's not going to work. You will get pregnant. You will contract an STI. If you, if the probability is right, this is what's going to happen. And so, you know, knowing your lubes as well, of like if you're using a latex condom, it needs to be a water-based. If you're using, you know, synthetic condoms, then we could get away with a coconut oil-based lube, not just straight coconut oil. <laughs> I would say like a, a mix of that. It's probably better, but even knowing those things. So, you know, we talked about fertility awareness method just in passing, but what is fertility awareness method? Well, you know, when I was taught a long time ago, it's called the, people would refer to it as the rhythm method. It's not the same thing. The rhythm and the calendar method are basically a guessing game and based on this archaic idea that every woman has a 28 day cycle and every woman ovulates on day 14, not true you might have a 34-day cycle and you might ovulate on day 18. And so the fertility awareness method that has the highest efficacy rate is when we combined our symptoms. So we look at our symptoms with our basal body temperature. Now, it takes about three months to get that dialed in. So understand that if you're coming off of birth control, you need backup methods, or if you've never used this before, you're going to want to use barrier methods if, if you're like not wanting to get an IUD or uh, hormones involved. And so with that, you wake up, as soon as your eyes pop open, you take your temperature and you write it down, or you can get an app and you can plug it in, or you can use something like Natural Cycles, which is the first FDA-approved contraceptive device or DAISY, which is a fertility monitor. It's not approved as preventing pregnancy as a device for that, that it works off similar technology. And then you just put a thermometer in and a light flashes at you. And if it's green light, you're good to go. And if it's red light, no. Like that means, unless you want to have a baby, don't have sex then. And so this is something where, you know, as I talk about my book, where math beats chemistry, where mathematics comes in and we actually have this femtech devices that really gamify our ability to dial in when we're fertile. Now, do these have a failure rate? Every single form. The only way to not get pregnant is to not have sex. So every single form of birth control has a failure rate. There's a typical use and there's a perfect use. With perfect use, nobody gets pregnant. And with typical use, the way we use it, so that is forgetting your pill, being a day late on placing your patch, Missing that depot appointment for your shot, or and with fertility awareness method, it tends to be we had unprotected sex. So during your fertile window, you can only get pregnant for 24 hours. That sperm is tricky. It can live like five or six days. So your fertile window is around a week. During that time, you need to either abstain from sex or abstain from vaginal intercourse if you're in a relationship with a male. You can do other things. Or you need to use a barrier method. Some women elect for a cervical cap. Some women elect for female condoms. Some use male condoms. Some people use the pull-out method. That's rolling the dice. But some people are okay with rolling the dice. With the pull-out method, it's one in five will get pregnant in a 12-month period using that method. And I have patients who use that and they're like, well, we're okay if we get pregnant. Like, you know, we kind of like, it's all right for us if you are not okay, then that's not okay. And I don't care what he says. You know, it can, with perfect use, that method actually it has a high efficacy rate. But like, how do we know what's perfect use? And when men are about to ejaculate, that their brain gets flooded with hormones. So this just like their pull-out game has to be on point. I am not comfortable with any method of birth control, where women can be subjected to irresponsible ejaculate, so to speak, so it's something where I'm like, you really, really have to be cautious. I know there's people out there saying that method's worked well for us for years, but that's just something that, like, statistically speaking, you are playing Russian roulette with pregnancy. So it's all about what what you're comfortable with. So does that all make sense? Yeah.
0: And the exciting thing is, is there are options. There are options. And this is where everyone listening needs to tune in with themselves. And feel what feels right for them. Have a discussion. If you're in a relationship, have a discussion with your beloved and an open dialogue about what's going to work for you guys. But this is where you need to take everything that we've spoken about and do what feels right for you because that's going to be the best option for you.
1: And having a discussion with your doctor. I mean, what really is important when it comes to birth control Doctors don't always counsel based on family history and personal history. So, you know, one example is, you know, since the introduction of birth control, women have complained of mood related symptoms. We have no studies to show causation, but we've got plenty of data out now to show association. Hormonal birth control is associated with an increased risk of depression, anxiety, mood swings, being put on an antidepressant. How can we do better? Well, if you go to your doctor and say, well, my mom actually has depression or my aunt, or I experienced depression when I was younger. The other thing that I recommend clinicians screen for that I don't have any research to say, oh yes, every woman that's gonna go on birth control screen for adverse childhood events, ACE scores, because there's a direct line in the research. There's not. But we know that higher ACE scores, so like having a family member that you live with go to prison, being physically, emotionally, or sexually abused, these kinds of things lend themselves to developing mental health issues. So we are already gonna be predisposed. So if we know this, and then we put you on a medication that may tip the scales, then that doesn't mean that like, oh, you can't use it. It means that we need to set you up to understand this is a possibility, we need to get the baseline. And this is what I recommend every woman, track your data for at least a month, if not three months before any medical intervention, if possible so that you can understand what's normal for you, write it down, get baseline labs as are pertinent for you. Then when you get that medical intervention, continue to track things. If you were a highly motivated individual who was a social butterfly, and then three months after starting the pill, you now are withdrawn. You are dodging text messages. You don't really care if you get that promotion at work or not. Something's wrong something's going on. Those can be early signs and symptoms. So if we can bring our personal data into our doctor, something that we've tracked, and then take personal responsibility to continue to track, then we can certainly advocate for ourselves a lot better. And as doctors, I really, you know, every time I lecture to prescribers, I say to them, screen her initially, do a mini mental health exam, screen her. Then two months later, it doesn't have to be you it can be a medical assistant. It can be someone on your staff. Call her up. Ask her how she's doing. Do the mini mental health screening exam. Go through some questionnaires about what's going on. Because especially the younger we are, the higher we are at risk of developing not only depression, but mood symptoms that are so extreme that we're at higher risk of suicide within the first few months of starting birth control. And knowing this, It doesn't mean, oh, no birth control for anyone. It means, okay, we have an opportunity to do better in women's medicine. So let's take that opportunity and carry it forward.
0: Mm, Absolutely. And it's really important that you find a doctor that you resonate with, that you feel comfortable with, that is integrative, that has your best interest at heart. I know a lot of people come to me and they say, "I, I haven't found someone. So find someone that you feel really comfortable with. That's really important as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no one size fits all in medicine when it comes to interventions or practitioners. And if your doctor isn't listening to you, find someone who will and advocate for yourself. It doesn't mean your doctor's a bad person. It just might mean that it's time for a different clinician. Exactly. Now, I would love
0: to turn the spotlight on you a little bit and would love to hear If you had a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the world, besides your book, which absolutely, I think people need to read this, you know, from the age of like 10, 11, 12, like the younger, the better. What is one other book that you would choose besides your book to put in the school curriculum of every
1: high school? Oh, it's tricky. I feel like it would be a tie between Taking Charge of Your Fertility or The Period Repair Manual by Dr. Lara Brighton, because I feel like those books are so, so important. And in Taking Charge of Your Fertility, you actually understand your menstrual cycle, when you're fertile, when you're not. And what I love about fertility awareness method, you don't have to use it for pregnancy prevention. You can use it to get in tune with your body. And then, what I love about Period Repair Manual is that that book really goes into a lot of a similar message that I have, which is that your body's not betraying you. Like, your body's signs and symptoms are his way of communicating, and you can support your body with that. So. You know, those, it would be a tie between those two. I wish like we could bridge both of those. <laughs> <laughs> we'll
0: link to both of those in the show notes as well as your book. I've actually had Dr. Lara Bryden on the podcast. She's incredible. So I'll link to that episode as well. So many incredible women like yourself out there spreading this message. So many doctors, so many people just finally voicing the effects that the pill is having and how we can heal our hormones. So I'm so grateful for you all.
1: It's so incredible, right? Like when I started talking about birth control and the issues with it, you know, that was like, I think probably like eight years ago that I really started talking about it a lot more vocal and nobody was talking about it in a big way. I feel like in a lot of ways, the social media explosion and the explosion of influencers using their voice, sharing their stories has really unified so many women. And I just I love seeing it. And I'm not saying I wasn't the only one talking about it back then, by the way, guys. It was just that like I wasn't bridged to people in the same way. Like it was, it just wasn't the same. And you know, I I see sometimes where people will come onto influencers' page. So people who are not medical clinicians who are sharing their story about birth control about their fertility journey, about their hormones. And they'll tell them like, you have no right to share this because you're not a medical professional. And I think that is one of the worst things that healthcare practitioners can do. We have a long, dark history in medicine of silencing women's voices, of dismissing women, of really disempowering them. And when you're doing that on social media, that is just more of the same dogma that has held so many of us back. And I always encourage women, share your story. It is your story. You will heal. You will heal just by using your voice, but you also never know who is going to heal or even know it's possible to heal until they hear your story. And that is something that, you know, as much as like influencers sometimes get backlash, I see these influencers who are very, very vulnerable sharing things about their journey And then I will read the comments of how many women are like, Oh my God, I thought I was the only one. I thought I was so alone. And it takes me back to when I came off the pill and I didn't talk about it. And I thought I was alone. It takes me back to when I had a miscarriage and I felt like I had to be quiet about it. Then my mom even told me, you shouldn't, you shouldn't talk about it. It Makes people uncomfortable. And when I started sharing that and how my patients were like, Oh my God, me too. Like, and how many of my friends were suffering silently because they were like, Me too. And I was told not to talk about it. So I think it is such, I mean, you having a podcast is such a tremendously powerful thing. And I'm just so grateful for your platform and for all of the women who use their voices to really shed light on this unifying issue, which is women feeling left in the dark, which is kind of funny because right now, guys, you can't see me but it just got really dark in my office and I can't reach the light. (laughs) As I say, I'm left in the dark. But, you know, in so many ways, I think that we are going to see really a exponential trajectory in the changes that happen in women's medicine just by way of so many women using their voice and doing it on a global level through social media. That is, fingers crossed that the powers that be and the physicians who have interest to censor women's voices don't get a hold on it. But we really like, we don't need censorship of women's voices. Like that's, that's like the 1950s, like revival that we just do not need to see happen.
0: Mm, Absolutely. Amen, sister. Amen. So I would love to hear now, how does your day look? Do you have a morning routine? I love hearing about how people prime themselves for the day and how they set themselves up for a successful day. So can you talk us through a quote-unquote typical day in your life?
1: Yeah. So, you know, uh, the thing to know, you know, (laughs) the thing about me is that I have a kid who has an autoimmune condition that causes inflammation on his brain. So it's called Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorder Associated with Strep or PANDAS. So as much as I love to have like a typical wonderful morning routine, sometimes it's complete chaos that I wake up to if he's in a flare. And I just want to be really transparent, especially because you'll see me in social media sometimes, no makeup, hair a mess, looking just a mess because I'm like, I haven't slept. So, but you know, with an ideal day, I wake up, I start my day, eyes open, deep breathing, the kid and the dog usually get in bed and my husband's there and we have the cuddle puddle sesh. So, Getting my oxytocin up first thing in the morning. I like to do some journaling. Sometimes I'll journal first and then meditate or I'll go into meditation and journal. I'm a big fan of the Muse meditation device, just like I'm a big fan of my aura ring. If it wasn't for my aura ring, I I think that some days as an A-type, I'd push myself harder than I absolutely need to, but it keeps me in check. So I will meditate and then sometimes I'll get an exercise routine in or I'll go down, I'll make breakfast, homeschool my son and then get my exercise routine in. So that's the other thing is that we homeschool and I try to carve out time for thinking. So I try to carve out time in my day just to have even if it's 10 minutes for myself just to think, just to get a breath of where am I at and where am I going and what am I really trying to accomplish because There are, I'm an A-type and I'm go, go, go. And I'm an entrepreneur. And sometimes I can get bogged down in the go, go, go. And I'm like, wait a minute, I've lost my way. I'm not even on the path I thought I was on. So that's a bit of like my morning routine. As I said, I am going to eat vegetables and protein for breakfast. I actually, generally for breakfast, will get my seeds in for whatever I'm seed cycling with. And then I go into my workday. So sometimes that's doing interviews. It could be writing since my son has developed pandas, I've actually gone on sabbatical. So I see far less patients than I have in the past. Yeah. And then, you know, the day is like whatever, whatever the schedule set, I'm sure you do this as well, but I block my days off or like, these are writing days. These are interview days. And then usually mid-afternoon, I will take a break for some movement and activity. And sometimes that's jumping in the pool. Sometimes it's going and playing with my kid, taking the dog for a walk. And then as we wind down in the evening, we do dinner. It's really funny whenever I read stuff and they're like trying to do dinner every night as a family. And I'm like, we do, unless I'm traveling for work, we do dinner every night as a family. Bedtime routine, which is, you know, books, story time with my son. And then at the end of that, I'm usually doing some gentle stretching. I might do some more journaling, reading, or I might just indulge in some Netflix and watch The Office or Parks and Rec, depending on the day. And it's very, very rare. And you guys, people were telling me like, oh, watch this, watch this. I I was sick a few months ago and people on Instagram were giving me recommendations and I don't watch super intense, negative, scary movies, things like that. When you work in healthcare and you hear the ugliest side of humanity from your patients that you're trying to help, it becomes too much. You don't need to ever see. And I remember when I was still in medical school and I started dating my husband and he would be like, oh, let's watch this scary thing or this intense thing. And I'm like, no, we're not going to, we're not watching any of that because I had, you know, had a really tough day of clinical rotations and I'm like... Not doing it, not doing it. And, you know, with HIPAA, my husband's like, why? What happened? I'm like, no, I can't talk to you about what happened. But it's also why I advocate for healthcare practitioners and everyone to have mental health support because there are things that we encounter in our day to day life that we were never given the tools to really move through. And it's really, really hard when you're in an acute situation to find somebody who is then a really great ally for you. Yeah. So once a week I meet with my counselor. And if I know there's some really, really big interview coming out and I'm going to probably get a lot of haters, then I schedule a second sesh just to make sure that I have someone to talk to and that it doesn't bleed through to my family life or distract me from the work I'm trying to do in the world. So is that helpful to know my routine?
0: Totally and super responsible of you to schedule in that second session. That's really, really powerful. It's often with my therapist, coach, whatever you want to call her. I'm like, I I feel really good. I don't feel like I need to book a session. And then it's just like one of those things. You just keep showing up because you're always growing and evolving and learning. And you're always going to get so much out of it. So I love that you book in a double session if you can feel that you might need a little extra support.
1: Well, and being honest with yourself too. So for everybody listening, if you caught me on impact theory, I talked about calling yourself out on your own bullshit. It is not an easy practice, right? Because we're we're is like is very much human nature to mask yourself and to you know. The, the carry on kind of attitude that happens, especially with women. And yet this is something that will come up in my journaling that I'll actually make note of because I found that years ago that I would cancel counseling sessions as well. And I'd be like, no, I'm good. Oh, I'm so awesome. I'm never going to be like, I can be awesome, but I'm never going to be like done doing the work, right? Is that I would write stuff that would come down journaling of like, you know, given the opportunity, what would I want to improve upon? And sometimes you know, I will make note of a specific situation. So like when my son was, so we were, we had a grocery store trip and he like threw a fit in the middle of the store. And I just did, that was like the first time I was trying to cope with it. And I was like, oh my God, but we have to like get groceries. Like you don't understand. And going through all of that. And then like when he was finally calm, I just typed it in my notes of like, that would be good to work on with your counselor. And so then when my session came up, And I was like, oh, I'm good. I don't have anything to talk about. Maybe we could just do a quick, like, 20 minutes today. And she was like, you want to check your list? I checked my list. And I was like, actually, I need to talk through the situation that happened because I realized that, like, as a parent, I could have had a better response. Like, I was effective, but I would like to be more effective. And I would like to use this as an opportunity for me to grow and for him to grow. Like, it is little things like that because sometimes there's this stigma around, like, having mental health support, having a counselor. And it's things that like, what if you could have a better response in the grocery where like when your kid starts to act up instead of a 15 minute ordeal, it becomes a you know five minute ordeal. Like you are able to get out of it quicker. And then looking at like, well, how does that translate to other other things in your life? And so Understanding that we all have stuff to work on and it doesn't have to be that like I had some big tragedy or I'm completely depressed. Like this is self-care and it's also preventative medicine. We so often hear things like preventative medicine is getting a pap and doing a self-breast exam. Yes, and preventative medicine is also tending to yourself as a holistic being. Like as, you know, all, we are a complex biological system all of our parts are integrated. As I explained to you earlier, the way you talk to yourself can affect it, it can affect your hormones. The way that you know you ignore issues and stifle them down can come at you 10 years later and there I mean you look at like Chinese medicine that's like anger issues look at your liver then we start to see that like people who are prone to anger you know, they can go on to develop non-alcoholic fatty liver disease from the, the the Western perspective, right? That conventional medicine perspective. So just to understand that while conventional medicine may want to compartmentalize you and say, lady parts go here, gastrointestinal system goes here, emotions go over here. Your body doesn't care. Your body and your entire being is like, no, it's all together. It's all or nothing is what you get. And so I think this is a really, you know, I'm very open about talking that about how the counselor and this was really born out of like when my son got really, really sick and I got really, really honest on social media about what was going on. And when I quite frankly lost my mind at times, not like, not like lost my mind. I needed to be like hospitalized, but like, I don't have any tools for this. I have never like pandas is a hell that unless you live through it, you like, you have no clue like what it's like or what, is, what what to even do like when you're in the thick of it. And so when I started sharing all of this, I had so many women that were like, you know, watching your stories, I actually booked a session with a counselor today and watching your stories, I realized that like, it's okay that I break down sometimes. And I, you know, I came up with this saying of like, it's okay to to break even the clouds break so that the moon can shine. Like there's, not so much of our society is like you, if you break down, if you can't handle every stressor and every, you know, terrible thing that might be thrown your way, then you're weak. Something's wrong with you. And yet it's sometimes when we break down that we find our greatest strength.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for saying that. So important. Never be ashamed to reach out and ask for support. Never, ever, ever. Okay, I have three rapid fire questions for you now.
1: Are you ready? I will say yes, but I feel like I always choke on rapid fire. <laughs> it's all good. You you can take as long as you want.
0: Okay, so the first one is: What's one of the most important things that we can do today for our health?
1: Mm, love yourself unapologetically and never stop advocating for yourself. You have to recognize that you have value, and if you say it's not normal, and your doctor says no, it is. If it's not normal for you, then don't stop advocating for yourself.
0: Mm, I love that. So powerful. So empowering. That needs to be a quote in itself. (laughs) Okay, the next one is, what's one of the most important things that we can do for our wealth? So more abundance in all areas of our life.
1: Mm, You got to clear the scarcity mindset. And especially as women... We don't need, we, we need, we have to stop with the, if she has this, it's because she took it from me and now I can't have it. In fact, if you want to grow your wealth, if you want to rise in, in anything, support your sisters, support one another, because truly the, you know, there's the, people will be like, the law of attraction is so woo. The law of attraction is not like, oh, I just wish for it and it happens. It is putting out those good vibrations and really paying it forward that things will come back to you. So you've got to clear this, like, if someone has, it means I have not and I can't. No, like, we have to clear that and recognize that if you see a woman out there hustling, if she is selling something, like, especially these small businesses... Hey, you may not be her customer, but can you leave her like a string of emojis on her account? Or can you say, I see you, I see you working, good work, keep it up. Because really this idea that we've got to hold a sister down to be able to take a step up is what has held all of us down for too long. So if you want more wealth, if you want more abundance, if you want more in life, then you've got to be willing to honor those surrounding you. And instead of trying to be like, let me sabotage you, why don't you say, hey, let me support you. And by the way, let me learn from you.
0: Mm, I love that. So beautiful. So powerful too. Okay. And the last one is what's one of the most important things that we can do for love,
1: for more love in our life? Get in the mirror and say, I love you. No, if you want more love in your life, you have to cultivate it internally. Like, it's the first place it has to start. Like, how can you expect to give love if you aren't, like, you know, and receive love if you don't believe that you're worthy of love? So Louise Hay, I just want to say I'm so grateful I found her book in my early 20s and she has this affirmation of I am loving and lovable. And it is so, so important. When I was a yoga teacher, it was like I would give people that affirmation all the time. And now as a doctor, I do that all the time. Where I'm like I want you to repeat to yourself as you fall asleep that I am loving and lovable. So You've got to start with that self-love and then also understand your love language because that's like really, really important as well. (laughs) This is something that like, I actually coach a, a group of women business entrepreneurs and I tell them all the time, I know my love language and it's acts of service. And so if I go all in on you and then you do nothing, if you're just like, Not gonna do anything. I feel like you don't love me. And it's so funny because they're like, well, I don't want you to think that. (laughs) But whereas my husband is all about affection. Like he's gotta be touched, or he doesn't think I love him. And I don't need to be touched. I just need like you do the dishes. I'm like, you love me. Like that's it. That's all it comes down to. But to like figure that out sometimes because. Me as a woman, my, that being my love language, most of my early programming as a child and a young adult was that is not how women receive love. You should want gifts and you should want someone to cuddle you. And when that, that wasn't me. And what, what, I, what some ex boyfriends even said to me is like, you're like a dude. You're so much like a dude. No, that's just my love language. And to know other people love differently. And then we feel rejected so, so less often.
0: Yeah, Gary Chapman's work, The Love Languages, is life changing. I remember when I first did it years ago, it just really helped me go, oh, okay, that's just how I receive and really appreciate love. And even doing it, there's one for children. So understanding my bonus son's love language as well, it has helped our relationship so much and my marriage. So I highly recommend getting that book reading it I'll link to it in the show notes it is such a good resource
1: mhm absolutely
0: okay is there anything else that you want to share any last parting words of wisdom or anything that you didn't get to talk about that I didn't get to ask you about that you really want to share
1: you know I think the biggest thing is I just want to remind women that you're not a lost cause and you're not hopeless just because you are a woman that being a woman and having periods actually gives you superpowers and your hormones can be leveraged to work for you. It's, you know, often that we only pay attention to our hormones when they're, when they're out of whack, right? If there's like, if we're hypothyroid, if we are having high estrogen, that's when we pay attention to our hormones. But I want to encourage you all to pay attention to your hormones and pay attention to how you feel cyclically. Because you being a cyclical creature actually have superpowers that your male non-cyclical counterparts do not have. So recognizing that there is inherent strength, beauty, and wisdom in the cyclical creature that you are and to honor that. Mm, So beautiful. I absolutely
0: agree. This has been so powerful. This has been beautiful. Thank you so much for all the knowledge and the wisdom. I've loved it. And I hope everyone's got so much out of it. I want to personally thank you so much for being here and sharing. I'm a big believer in service and you serve so many people with your work and everything that you do. So how can we serve
1: you today? What can we do to give back to you? You know, the biggest thing is like, give me feedback and let me know if what I'm doing is helping you. So if you find me on Instagram, leave a comment. Oftentimes you know, people are like, oh, I, I never feel compelled to leave a comment unless I have a question. I'm like, well, when with creators, we don't know, is this hitting the mark? Is this what you need? So leave me a comment, give me a follow, head over to drbrayton.com, that's dot com, and share it with someone. There's Women call it the Google of women's health because there's so much information there. But I, I want to be able to change women's medicine for the better. But it is not going to be me who changes women's medicine for the better. It is going to be all of the women like you and the women who are listening who change their body, who do what doctors said couldn't be done naturally, who share this information, who share their story, and who pass it along to other women who need it. So that is the biggest thing is if you can help spread this message, share this podcast with someone. I mean, as easy as just text message. Apple makes it so easy these days, you guys. But forward it along, pass it along, and show some love and support to another woman in your life because you never know when, when you pass something along. I mean, there's times that I put out emails uh, to my list and we will get hundreds of messages back of women saying, it's like you knew this is exactly what I needed when I needed it. It's because all of us are struggling in some way every single day.
0: Mm, Absolutely. Oh my goodness. Yes. Come and let us know what you got out of this episode. We would love to hear and share your insights with us, any wisdom and share this episode. We would be so grateful. I would love to hear what you guys got out of this as well. So thank you so much for being here, for doing the work that you do, for sharing your wisdom with us today. I am so grateful that our paths have crossed and thank you for sending me your book, And I really hope that everyone gets so much out of this episode. So thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Wow, that was so informative. So much information, guys, I highly recommend getting her book. It is full of everything that you need to know. So please, please, please grab a copy of that. And if you got a lot out of today's episode like I did, please subscribe and leave me a review in iTunes or on your podcast app because that means that we can educate and inspire even more women together. And it also means that you could potentially be the review of the week for next week, which is pretty awesome. And don't forget to email me a screenshot of your review to hello at And as a thank you gift, I will send you my wildly wealthy meditation. Don't forget to come and follow me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini and tell me your top key takeaways from this episode. I absolutely love reading what you get out of each episode. So please, please, please come and share them with me. And for everything that Jolene and I mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. And that's over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 289. And you can also listen to all my other episodes there too. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest, and the happiest version of yourself, and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please be an angel and share it with them right now.